Evening, everyone. We're going to continue in um, Proverbs chapter 1. So that's 635 in the Church Bibles. And tonight we're reading verses 8 through to verse 19. <clears throat> so Proverbs 1, uh, verses 8 to 19. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us, we will all share the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into evil and they are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you that you promised to give wisdom to those who need it, and you promised to give it without finding fault. Uh, and Father, we're conscious of our need for that wisdom, and we know that true wisdom is hard won. So we pray that in your mercy, you will take your word and bring it alive to us by the power of your spirit. Uh, give us ears to listen and hearts to receive, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the start of the service, Ben mentioned this sort of image of Proverbs as being like boiled sweets, things that you can only really get the most out of if you are patient, if you work with them, if you, if, if you keep going with them. If you just try and sort of crush them between your teeth, it's all over very quickly and you don't really get the benefit. Uh, and uh, there is only one really proverbial saying in our reading tonight, and it's in verse 17. Do you look at it with me? How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. Uh, and uh, when you look at that, and I don't know whether it sort of struck you as we were hearing it, but I think there's a certain amount of, huh? What? It doesn't seem to, to, to follow particularly from uh, what else is going on. And yet in one sense, I think it's the key to the, to the whole thing. So just start sucking on that. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. I wonder what the writer might be getting at, what the point of that might be. Well, we'll come back to it in a minute. Uh, but um, let's start um, on page 635 uh, in uh, verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Uh, we, uh, last week we looked at verses 1 to 7, which are a sort of uh, prologue to the book. Uh, in our Bibles, it says purpose and theme. It sort of sets out uh, what Proverbs is about, what it's supposed to achieve. It's supposed to give prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, and for the wise to add to their learning, to get discipline and guidance. Uh, so this is uh, a book of wisdom for really knowing how to live in the world, how to be in this sort of strange, chaotic world uh, that we inhabit, uh, where even the sayings of the wise are like riddles, where it's hard to make sense of life. 
But then we saw at the end last week, verse 7, the key thing, the first thing, the key stain in this building. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right at the sort of center of wisdom is this basic starting point. God in the right place. God honored and wondered at and believed and trusted and respected. That is the thing that makes wisdom possible. Without it, you cannot be wise, not in the sense that the writer of Proverbs is getting at. So that's the sort of prologue. And then we get the introduction uh, to the book here. So uh, chapters one to nine are uh, a sort of a more prose-like uh, and, and less of the sort of pithy, uh, terse sayings, the proverbs that come uh, in chapters 10 and onwards. Uh, and um, it's, it's almost like a sort of frame through which to view the book. So uh, how, how do we begin? Listen, my son. So the idea is of a king passing on wisdom to the one who will be king after him. But it sounds to our ears, doesn't it, a little bit strange and possibly a bit chauvinistic. Is wisdom just for men? Is it just for sons? Is this all just very male-focused and male-dominated? Well, if you read through the book of Proverbs, you could, on first view, be forgiven for thinking that. So uh, the son in Proverbs is presented in these first chapters uh, with uh, two competing Uh, women calling out uh, for his affections. One, uh, a prostitute, essentially, in the street, calling him aside, promising pleasure. The other, wisdom, the lady wisdom, calling him to herself. Uh, And so you might look at it and think, you know, where are the women? (laughs) And yet, if you read verse 8... What do you notice? Is wisdom for women? Well, it must be, mustn't it? Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. I think if we accept the sort of framing device of the book as it being instruction being passed on to a son, we'll understand why some things are personified uh, as uh, female uh, uh, through the eyes of the son. But from whom does the son learn wisdom? Who are the wise people here? Well, both his father and his mother. Uh, In chapter 8, when wisdom is is sort of personified, wisdom is a woman. Uh, In one sense, the sort of wisest person you come across in the book uh, is the excellent woman of chapter 31. And time and again, we're told there are words of wisdom on her lips. Wisdom clearly is something that women are expected to have. It's not that wisdom is only for men. Far from it. Son, do not forsake your mother's teaching. Wisdom is for human beings, men and women alike. But what is the benefit of wisdom? Well, in verse 9, the instruction that comes from the father, the teaching that comes from the mother, is something that makes the son beautiful. 
a garland to grace your neck, to grace your head, a chain to adorn your neck. It's an image of dignity and beauty, of nobility. If you hang on to your, to, to your father and mother's teaching, the father and the mother being kind of here prototypically wise people who themselves have ab absorbed the wisdom that's in this book, if you hold to that, it will make you noble and upright and beautiful. So there's one group, mother and father. Will you listen to them? Will you hold on to their teaching? And remember, this is advice given at least within the sort of framing of the book to a young man. But what's the alternative? What's the alternative to wisdom? There's not just one voice in this young man's ear. Uh, and we're going to look uh, at um, what is uh, the competing sound, the competing words, the words of the gang. If sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. So, for those of you familiar with the Old Testament of the Bible, that, that there are lots of things there that it, it, immediately you sort of hear them and you think, that sounds familiar. That language of enticing uh, takes our minds back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent entices the man and the woman in God's good garden, in the home of God himself, entices them to turn against God, to take another path a path that involves theft, a path that involves death. But they listen, and they are enticed. That language of enticing is very evocative. Notice, uh, we're told if they're, they're sinful men, there's a, a, a characteristic, do not give in. Well, what is the enticement? What's so attractive about this gang that this young man might want to join it? Well, I think the key words in the, uh, uh, in the enticement are us and we. Notice, if they say, come along with us, uh, let us lie in wait for innocent blood, let us ambush some harmless soul, let us swallow them alive like the grave. Verse 13, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us. We will all share the loot. There's a promise of big belonging, of a community, of a group in which you will feel safe and powerful. So notice what they're suggesting they should do. We'll lie and wait for innocent blood, ambush some harmless soul. I mean, that's one of the great attractions, isn't it, for, for, the, for the young men and women who, who join gangs throughout this country. If you think about the sort of um, the urban street gang, there's that promise of belonging, but also the promise of a feeling of safety and power. It's easy to characterize people in the world as one of two sorts. You're either a victim or you're an oppressor. 
You're either, either the sort of person that things get done to, or you're the sort of person that does things to others. Which is more attractive? Do you want to be a victim? No, I don't. Then join us. We are the ones doing the doing, not being done to. That's what they're saying. We will give you strength and power and safety. And, and, and that's a heady promise, isn't it? For, for people who feel insecure and unsafe. You join the gang, you don't get picked on. There's a promise of mutual protection. A promise of safety. But also a sense of power, a sense of being someone. Doing unto others before they do unto you. But there's also the promise of cheap riches. Of huge wealth without any real hard work. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us, we will share the loot. So there's a promise of safety, a promise of belonging, and a promise of profit. And it's all easy. All you've got to do is join. All you've got to do is become one of us. Verse 15, my son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. Uh, I wonder if you're familiar with the idea of a, a plausibility structure. Uh, it's um, a, a sort of psychological idea or, or a sociological idea that explains how groups of people sort of share beliefs uh, and they mutually reinforce their view of the world together. Uh, and advertisers use it a lot. It's called herd marketing. Uh, it was um, uh, famously uh, introduced in, uh, probably not the first example of it, but a classic example of it uh, in 1959 with the release of uh, Elvis's Gold album. Uh, and I don't know whether you can quite see uh, on the screen, but it says 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. There's this huge number of people who know that Elvis is brilliant. You're not taking a risk by buying an Elvis record. It immediately went platinum. Uh, and herd marketing says, you know, look, the, come with the crowd. Because we are herd animals. We move in packs. Uh, and it is much easier to believe something if the people around you believe it. Uh, and so the father says to his son, don't go with them. Don't even start down their path. Verse 15, don't set foot on their paths. Uh, and the whole thing of a plausibility structure, you see it the other way around uh, in the post office scandal. I don't know if you've seen this uh, ITV series yet, uh, Mr. Bates versus the post office. Uh, Sam and I sat down to watch one episode last Saturday night uh, and then um, ended up going to bed quite late because it was very compelling. We watched all four. Um, but um, it's, I mean, it's, it's described as the biggest miscarriage of justice in British history. Well, all these sub-postmasters who had faulty software given to them by the post office, uh, which meant that their accounts weren't right, 
Uh, and initially, they were just expected to make, it up, make up the differences out of their own pockets. But then in the end, lots of them ended up getting prosecuted. 550 of them, uh, in the end, triumphed over their place in the office in the High Court. Uh, but um, what each one of them was told when they rang up, when they first rang up and when they were reporting problems, they were told, well, you're the only one. No one else is having these problems. You're the only one. They were isolated. They were led to believe they were, going, they were essentially going mad. Well, no one else is having these problems. I don't know what's wrong with you. Being isolated, being the only one who thinks a certain way, who believes a certain thing, is psychologically incredibly difficult. And the effect on these people was, was appalling. And if you haven't seen the show, I mean, I do recommend it to you. It is really interesting. Lesson one, I suppose, is this. Choose your friends carefully. When sinners entice you, do not go along with them. Don't even set foot on their paths. It's a cliche, isn't it, to talk about people getting in with the wrong crowd, but you know the pattern. If your friends are going in a direction, you're going with them. So choose the company you keep with great care. It works in the negative, but it also works in the positive, doesn't it? Actually, I remember someone using that example, this example here, uh, not so long ago, the Scottish minister visiting uh, the house of a man who'd given up attending church. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm fine, I'll just be a Christian on my own. And the minister didn't say a word. Uh, there was a roaring coal fire uh, there where they were sitting together, and he just went and took one of the coals out of the fire and put it on the hearth. And they both watched together as the coal turned from a beautiful glowing orange and gradually just went dark and cold. He popped it back in the fire. It began to glow with the rest of the coals. The minister didn't utter a word, he just went out. And of course the man was in church on the next Sunday. As Christians, we need each other to, to, to actually just remind each other of the truth that we share. We just need to recognize that just always being the odd one out, never being with people who see the world through the same lens that you do, is enormously difficult. Now on impossible. But of course, it's not just young people joining gangs, is it? That's not, you know, Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 19, the, the summary of this is not, oh, don't join a gang. That's what's on the surface of it, but that's not applicable to most of us. I mean, no one's inviting me to be in their gang. <laughs> Just imagine. <laughs> but of course, the post office is still up there. The corporation's like a gang, isn't it? So the post office uh, suppressed the information about what was going wrong with their computer systems and, and continued to pick off and prosecute innocent people, why? Well, if this testimony from the CEO is to be believed, it was essentially to protect the reputation of the post office. The corporation can act like a gang, can't it? It can say, well, look, we know this isn't a great thing to do, but actually the end justifies the means. 
we need to do this difficult thing, this painful thing. But we know it's not great. We don't like doing it. But we've, we've got to do it because actually the brand needs it. You know, this is what puts bread and butter on all of our tables. We just need to suck it up. And some of us will have been in situations at work. I know some of us have been in situations at work where actually the pressure from management is, look, you need to lie to this person. You need to tell them something that's not true. And it's very plausible. You need to do the wrong thing. Well, it's a small thing. You need to do that thing for this much bigger gain. It happens in churches too. It's happened within the culture of the Church of England when abuse has been... And it's happened in the culture of churches like ours where abuse has been reported and kept quiet. Because, well, it wouldn't look good, would it? It wouldn't look good. It wouldn't commend Christianity to people if they knew this thing had happened here. And so victims are silenced. Evil is done for the sake of a supposed good. So you can see the pattern, right? It's not, it's not just, you know, street gangs. It's corporations. It's churches. It could be families. Where we find ourselves beginning to believe that it is possible that doing the wrong thing is the right thing. Because doing the wrong thing will achieve the thing, or we think it will achieve the thing we, we want or need. So that's the second lesson. The wrong thing can seem right because it promises a good result. So when sinners entice you, they don't entice you by saying, let me just do something awful in your life. They say, look, this is the way to blessing. This is the way to flourishing, to success, to plenty. And it is plausible. And it sometimes even seems to work. But, how useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. Now, I wonder what you think that means. What do you think it means? It's a senseless action, isn't it? To, to, to set a trap for something that can see the trap you're setting for it. It's a senseless action. Traps need to be stealthy. They need to be unseen, unobserved. So if you spread a net for the bird and you sprinkle the bird seed there, the birds are all going to go, yeah, but I've seen the net. And the idea is, look, even birds are, are, are clever enough to see the net, to see the trap, and not be caught. I think that's the point of verse 17. Uh, and it's deliberately to add spice to what comes next. Because what seems so plausible, so worldly wise, 
what seems to make perfect sense is actually complete nonsense. The promises they make are, well, mad. Look what he says. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. Why? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, what these people don't take into account, you think, well, there's no comeback. We, we go after harmless people who can't do anything back to us. We get what we want. They forget that there is a God in heaven, a God to whom they will answer. And so, whilst they think they're being clever and sophisticated and worldly wise, what the people who go after dishonest gain, the people who become oppressors, the people who do violence to others, uh, they're actually lying in wait for their own blood. They're setting a trap. Uh, and, and it's even worse than the person who sets a trap for, for, for the birds in front of the birds so the birds can see them doing it. And even the birds are sensible enough not to fly into the trap. It is so mad that they're actually setting a trap for themselves. I think that's, that's the point. It is not rational to live in God's world as if God wasn't there. Uh, and this section points us back. I was so pleased that Catherine uh, read uh, a bit of Psalm 1 to us because that's absolutely what's on my mind. We didn't confer beforehand. But that language of not setting foot on their paths just points back to Psalm 1. This is the worldview underneath Proverbs. The worldview of Psalm 1. Let's just read it all together. It's on uh, page 543. I don't mean let's read it all together. I mean I'm going to read it and you're going to read along with me, right? So, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Proverbs 1 verse 19, such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. It promises the good life, but it brings death. So there's the big point. The existence of God changes everything. If God is there, it is stupid to do evil, even when it seems good. If God is not there, well, it's a complete free-for-all. But he is. Now, Proverbs points forward to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, who is the one greater than Solomon, who personifies all wisdom. And it seems to me important to point to him now. 
It may be that you sit there and you think, okay, well, what I'm getting from all this is that it's, it's, it's good to live in God's world as if God was there, to remember that I'll stand before him in judgment. And that's right. It's good to choose friends who are going to help you on the right path rather than leading you down the wrong path. And it's a huge mistake to choose as your kind of cohort of people, people who are going to lead you astray. But it may also be that you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, actually, I've done some things in my life that I'm really not proud of. And I've walked down that path and I'm on that path. What then? If that path leads to destruction, if I am going to have to face my creator one day, what, what then? What good news is there for me in this? Well, the God of wisdom, he caused Proverbs to be, word, to be written, showed his wisdom in the most extraordinary way. He went completely against the ends justify the means culture of the world. He refused simply to become just another oppressor, to use his power to get his way. He sent his son Jesus into the world who refused to go along with the way of the world, both of the Roman authorities but also of the religious leaders of his time who were corrupt. And for doing good, he was killed. And it looks like a complete defeat when Jesus died on the cross, it looked like victory for the powers opposed to him and complete defeat for him. And yet, what the Bible tells us and what his resurrection from the dead, dead demonstrates to us is that far from being a defeat, his death was an extraordinary victory. Because through it, he won the world back to himself. That's the story that the meal we'll share in a moment tells. That all those wrong decisions, all those evil thoughts that come from our hearts, all the stupid things that we've done, Jesus bore them himself when he died. So that we could live as if we had been the wise son of Proverbs chapter 1 a garland for our heads. He wore a crown of thorns, a chain to adorn your neck. Dignity and beauty is given to any who will come to Jesus. So let this meal speak that lesson to your heart, that not only is God to be wondered at and to be feared and to be praised, but his wisdom in finding a way through apparent defeat to win you to himself conquers all the supposed wisdom of the world. Let's take a moment to pray together and I'll hand over back to Ben. Father, we thank you that you're the God of all wisdom. We thank you that your way is perfect peace and blessing. 
Lord, we acknowledge that in all kinds of ways and at all kinds of times, we have lived as if you were not there. Every simple decision we've ever made was a denial of you. And yet we thank you for your extraordinary mercy, for your wisdom displayed in Jesus that wins us to yourself. Teach us to wonder at that, to love you, and so to take your word deeply into our hearts and live by it. Gracious Father, give us the grace to be a community that spurs each other on to know you better and to live your way in your world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.